of Tyre. And uh, he, he thought that it went clear around 225 degrees, so only had 135 degrees to go. And also, Columbus, um, through different assumptions, calculated the whole size of the earth not to be, the circumference of the earth rather than 25,000 miles in circumference, thought it was only 15,000 miles in circumference. So he thought that his, his traveling across the, the west to Asia and India would be easy. Well, he brought his idea of funding to different kings in various countries, and he stood before King John Paul II of Portugal on several occasions, and he tried to convince the king to, to let him travel. As the king counseled with his, uh, um, with his scholars, they said, no, no, Columbus's ways, he, his calculations are all wrong. He's got to go much further than that, and uh, he's not going to make it. So why fund this trip that's just going to lose? It's not going to make it there. Because no ship at that time was able to go that far, they thought it was. But Columbus keep insisting. He went to other nations, couldn't find anyone willing to support him, even went to uh, King Henry VII of England with his wild-sounding endeavors. And finally, he convinced King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain to fund his quest. And when they fund his quest, they said, Bon voyage! And they really thought that they'd never see Columbus again. They thought he'd go out never to return again. And uh, yet, as uh, Columbus sailed for, the, for India and China on August 3rd, 1492, he left with three ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. How's my Spanish accent that time? <laughs> Man, okay, whatever. Five weeks later, they spotted land. And it turned out to be an island in the Bahamas, which Columbus named San Salvador. He sailed on to Cuba, which he named Hispaniola, and returned home. And when he returned home, he was convinced that he landed at India and China. And even three more successive trips across the Atlantic, he found more land, continued to explore. And to his dying day, Christopher Columbus was convinced that his adventures had taken him to the eastern shores of Asia. Lots of misinformation, lots of uh, mistakes. You know, people said, oh, he couldn't get all the way around. He didn't get all the way around. He thought he got all the way around. It's a great illustration of our topical sermon series we've been preaching this summer, Not Our Ways. These past seven weeks have been my aim to demonstrate to you the various ways in which God has created this world is different than a world that we would have created were we God. And Christopher Columbus was wrong about many things. And apart from the biblical revelation we receive, we might well be like Christopher Columbus, trusting in our own perception of reality rather than trusting in the reality of God's Word. Apart from God's Word, we could go to our dying days deceived of the true reality that's around us. Because God has made a world that's different than we might naturally think best. And this is my eighth and last sermon in this series. I'm going to be gone for vacation the next two weeks off in California with my family. Tim Sattler will be here the next two weeks. And then when I get back, we're going to start in First Peter. I'm really excited to get through, to get back to verse-by-verse exposition that I like, that is, I think, ultimately profitable for us. But this summer has just been a little bit different. This sermon, um, as you all know, from Edward Pace and God's Ways Above Man's, it's on the back table. We've encouraged you to read it. It's really just made a huge impact on my soul. I wanted to flush it out and and give you these different ways in which pace and detail the world that God made is different than ours. We made eight different sermons this past week. First week we started eight weeks ago, seven weeks ago with uh, the problem of evil. God created a world in which evil exists and rules and reigns in many ways. And, and in fact, evil was important in the plan of God as he used evil ultimately to crucify his son so as to provide salvation to those who believe. We wouldn't have thought that way. Second, God created a world in which you can transfer righteousness or guilt from one person to another. You can be held guilty for the sins of others because we all are held guilty in Adam. But also, that's the very means by which we obtain our righteousness because we are righteous because of Jesus' righteousness upon us. We wouldn't have created a world that way. That's how God created a world. Our third weekend, we, we looked at how God created a world in which Salvation was offered to fallen man, but not to fallen angels. I mean, we are equal opportunity people, and we, we would think that God would extend His opportunity of saving hand to equally to fallen angels and fallen men, but He's not. He chooses just to help fallen men. It's different than our ways. different than we would have thought. 
In our fourth week, we saw how God created a world in which a Savior would come humbly, not with pomp and circumstance. And we know how Jesus came. Humble, born of a virgin, born under the law, in a lowly small town of Bethlehem, not even in a nice place, but in a barn. And that was the Savior of the world. The pomp and circumstance were only angels to a few shepherds. Not too many. We need to think if God's going to save people in the world, He's going to come with flashes of, uh, of lightning and He's going to come and, and tell everybody, hey, here's Christ and He has chosen a different means. And that's the means we looked. We looked fifthly that God created a world in which He would use weak, frail, unattractive people to spread His message rather than superstars. God in His salvation has chosen to save the, the weak and the shameful, the despised and the base. Not the superstar. He, he chose to use people like you and me to save them and then to use them to proclaim His message about this humble Messiah. Someday He'll come back and rule and reign, but that's not the saving message. The saving message is that he, He's come and He's been a lamb, silent before His shearers, crucified when everything in Him could have cried out for justice. He could have averted the cross. He took the cross for us. In our sixth week, we looked and saw how God created a world which a few would be saved and not many. I mean, if we had created a world, we would have created a world where, where many, most, all are saved. But God has created a world in which few are saved. Now, that will be many in, in light of numbers, but in terms of percentage, it's few that God has chosen to save. God's ways aren't our ways. Last week, we looked at how God created a world in which salvation comes by grace and not by works. So almost everybody in their own natural thinkings, say, I'll be saved by being a good person. That's how I'll get to heaven. But God has smashed all that. And the only way you get to heaven is by grace through faith. It's the only way. God's ways aren't our ways. We wouldn't have thought that. And this week, we'll look at how God created a world in which the process of sanctification in His people is painfully slow. In other words, we'll see that if we thought, if, we, if we're if we going to save people and the ultimate vision for saving people is to bring them to purity and righteousness and holiness for God, we think, well, hey, let's just bring them up instantly, sanctify and cleanse them. And yet God doesn't do it that way. He caused our sanctification to be slow. Now, these eight ways we've picked up this past eight weeks are, are far from being exhaustive. Um, I've just picked them up from um, Edward Payson's sermon. There are many others that we could have. And in fact, I received an email from Tom Galen. I told Tom I was going to share this email. Before I started this series, he said, Steve, been looking forward to your summer topical series on God's ways are not man's ways since you mentioned it. I'm sure it promises to be very good. I hope it was very good, but the Lord uses it. I've been thinking on this subject for a while as it relates to church structure and growth and all the things we need to keep in mind regarding the difference between the economy of God and man. Things like the weak shall be strong, the last shall be first. To live, we must die. To do, we must be. The poor shall be rich, and the rich shall be poor. To lead, we must serve. To know, we must be known. And God will glory in the few, not the multitude. Thanks, Tom. I mean, Tom just exposed even many more ways in which God's ways are not our ways, which we didn't even touch upon. We, we could extend this series throughout the whole year probably, ways in which God has done things but I trust that eight weeks has been enough to make the point. We need to see that we ought not merely to trust in our own logic regarding the ways of God, but we need to trust in His Word as He's revealed Himself to be. Well, we're going to look this morning at uh, the issue of sanctification, how it's slow. Like I've done every other time, I want to read what Edward Payson said. Edward Payson said this. He says, God's thoughts and ways are not ours as respecting the best methods of dealing with His people and carrying on the work of grace in the souls after it begun. When God delivered His people from the Egyptian bondage, if He had led them by the nearest and most direct way to Canaan, they might have reached it in a very few days. And had, been, and had they been consulted, they probably would have thought the nearest way the best. But God thought otherwise. So also when God converts His people from sin to holiness... He could, if he pleased, render them perfectly holy at once. And they're often ready to imagine that the world would be a much better way, both for his glory and for their own good. But instead of adopting this method, he grants them at first 
but small degrees of grace and increases it in a very slow and gradual manner. He leads leads them around for many years through a wilderness beset with temptations, trials, and sufferings with a view to humble them, prove them, and show them all that is in their hearts. By the discoveries which they make of their own weaknesses, ignorance, and propensities to sin, their pride is humbled, their self-confidence destroyed, their patience, meekness, and candor are increased, the Savior and His method of salvation rendered more precious, and all ground for boasting forever excluded. That's how God saves us. That's how God sanctifies us. That's how God purifies us. It's a slow, painful, difficult process. Payson points out that God's purpose in redeeming us from our sins through Christ is to bring us into a better state of things. And that's ultimately why we are saved, to to be in a better state than before we were saved. As sinful creatures, we suffer and groan and encounter difficulties in this life. But when we experience forgiveness of sins, it's good for us. And ultimately, it will be best for us when we are free never to sin again. And when we reach that state of never sinning, our, our fellowship with God will be perfect and God will be glorified forever in the worship of Him. Right? Won't that be better? That would be much better. And furthermore, in redeeming us, it's not only for our own good, but it's for God's good as well. When we're redeemed from our sin, we're made to be worshipers of God and God receives and accepts our worship even today as we worship Him and sing songs of praise to Him. But when we're perfected in heaven being sinless beings, understanding the Lord rightly, will worship Him in total purity. We'll worship Him as totally been redeemed and His grace will be magnified and His glory will be magnified even ever more. In heaven, you will be able to worship the Lord in greater ways than ever you you are able to worship Him here on earth. And God will receive more glory in those days. So it's better for God, ultimately, for us to be perfectly sanctified as He'll receive more glory. But God's ways are not our ways. When God redeemed us from our sin, He didn't make us holy at once. He could have done so, but He chose not to. Instead, He has delayed our ultimate perfection. He's delayed the full worship of Him. And He's allowed us in this constant state of struggle with our sin. Now, if any of us would have been consulted, I don't think that we would have come up with this plan. We would have come up with all sorts of arguments. God, it's better for us to be with you right now. It's better for you for us to to be perfect beings worshiping you. And God said, no, I'm going to allow my people to struggle, be engaged in lifelong painful struggles with sin. And we struggle until the day that Christ returns or until the day that we die and are with Him in glory. It's just how it is. It's not the way we would have chosen things. In fact, I remember a story of a friend of mine who was training for missions work in a remote part of the world. And uh, while he was training, he was training along, alongside people from foreign countries. And one person was from India. I remember one person was from Russia. And in the mo- course of their training, what they did was they, um, they were building a building. And, and the training for out in the bunks when you don't have you know, great machinery and great things. And so they started digging a foundation by hand. And a couple hours into it, the Russian man said, In Russia, we have machines to do this digging. He didn't like it. He thought that America, we couldn't do that. But the point is that he was making it hard and making it it difficult. And that's not the way that we would choose. I mean, we dig a foundation, we take a backhoe. We don't take a, a shovel and start digging our foundation. And you're the same way, right? When you're at home, you put your dishes in your dishwasher if you have one, rather than washing them by hand. You put your clothes in your washing machine rather than using a washboard. You use a gas-powered motor rather than using one of those push-power motors that you power yourself. You drive rather than walk. I mean, which of you today said, you know what, we're going to church today, and uh, but you know, I don't want to drive today. That's too easy. I want, to, I want to walk to church today. How many of you walked to church today? You chose your air-conditioned car. Choose the, the life of, of ease. Use the easier way. That's the way we always choose. We always choose the easier path, but God has chosen a difficult path for us, not delivering us completely from our sin. Well, one of the places that shows the difficulty of our struggle the best is in Romans chapter 7. I invite you to turn there if you haven't already. Romans chapter 7. I want to read verses 14 through 25. And, you know, and today my exposition is going to be different. I'm really not going to exposit so much Romans 7. 
Though we're going to be here and pull observations of it, my, my message this morning is more kind of a topical variety, just to bring out the main thrust and thought here of Romans 7. Which, by the way, is really encouraging text for us. You know, there, there are people that oftentimes we can think in terms of spiritual life and put them up on a pedestal, think that they have everything right, and particularly the Apostle Paul. Uh, I remember one man saying he's probably the greatest Christian who ever lived. And I, I probably I agree with that. They're just a, the smartest, brightest, humblest, most gifted man who ever walked. He's probably probably the best model Christian for us. And yet, he struggled with sin. In fact, his struggle is difficult <clears throat> and deep. And there is this encouragement when you see that here's the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul. We think he's got everything together. He's not got everything together comes an encouragement to us when we see that because we can identify our hearts resonate with that. And I even think I was talking to my wife this last night, I think, about my message today. And she said, you know, our, our basement is about like sometimes our, our lives can feel like Paul is in Romans chapter 7. We've been remodeling our basement. Boy, how long, it's been going on all summer long. There's no end in sight to this project. We're looking maybe December. I'm not exactly sure. But our basement right now is a mess. There's uh, drywall dust all over the place. There's drywall here. There's paint. There's paint splotches. All our furniture is kind of stacked up. And it is a mess. Right, Yvonne? <laughs> it is. And uh, that's some some ways what our life can be like. It can be a mess. It can be difficult. It can be hard. We're not perfect. The Apostle Paul is not perfect. We're not perfect. And it comes a great comfort to our souls to, to realize this. Now, before I read these verses of struggle, which will come to, a comf- come, come to comfort us, you need to know that there are some people who believe that as Paul wrote these words of struggle in verses 14 through 25, he was describing the life of Paul before he was a Christian. I'm not sure if you've heard of that. Maybe you have. But they say, in, in fact, it's gaining more and more speed, more and more commentators, more and more people are believing this. I think mostly it has its roots in perfectionistic theology. Um, it fundamentally comes from Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 8, which are chapters of victory. And, and sin is dead. Don't consider sin alive anymore in your bodies. And almost like we live this perfect life. And they say seven doesn't, doesn't fit. How can Paul say the things in chapter 6 of victory and chapter 8 in victory and yet say these things of chapter 7 in defeat? So they say, well, it must be that he was talking about his pre-conversion experience. Now, we don't have time to go into all the arguments and details and things like that. But let me simply say the most simple reading of this text is to read it Paul being a Christian and struggling in his sin. Because he's giving his testimony in verses 7 through 13. He's talking about his past tense. He's talking about how the the, the commandment of coveting came upon him and how he was convicted and, and how he saw those things. And then in verse 14, he changes. And now he's talking about his present tense of what he is like now that he's come to faith in Christ. And I think that as Paul shifts to the present tense here in verse 14, it's the most easy way to read it as Paul's talking about his life and experience right now. And as I read this passage, I just want you to think about your own life. Think about if these words ring true for you. I I bet they do. And you should find them an encouragement because the great Apostle Paul had sin as well. They struggle with Romans 7, verse 14. For we know that law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I, I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur in the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, 
who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. Now, although the flow of these words, how exactly it flows, is difficult to follow. Paul didn't follow an exact outline that's really easy. Uh, one pastor I listened to preached this, this passage, spoke about how Paul just said the same thing three times. And so he had the same outline. Three points here, three points here, three points here. They all were the same because Paul just kind of went and he meanders and he talks about all these things. It's hard to follow. But though it's hard to follow, the theme is easy to pick up, isn't it? I mean, the the theme is easy. And I just want to uh, point this out that uh, on the one hand, Paul desperately wants to do right. Just to kind of show you what, what he's looking there. Look at verse 14. He calls the law spiritual, meaning it's good. He says in verse 15, the willing to do good is, is present in me. He says in verse 21 that, that he wants to do good. In verse 22, he says, I joyfully concur with the law of God on my inner man. He's got all these good things. I see the law. I know that it's good. I want to do good. I, I'm concurring with the law. Yes, that's what I want. And yet on the other hand, Paul says he's got this tremendous difficulty. It's an incredible battle. In doing what's right. He says in verse 15, I'm not practicing what I would like to do. In verse 15, I am doing the very thing that I hate. In verse 16, he says, I do the very thing I don't want to do. He says in verse 18, the doing of good is not in me. Verse 19, I practice the very evil that I do not want. And in verse 23, he pictures himself as a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. He says, yes, I see the law. It's good. I want to follow it. I want to obey. I, I, I concur it's good. But, but I can't. I can't. I just can't do it. So great is the struggle that he calls it here in verse 23, a war. That's my first point. Sanctification is a war. Think Iraq. Think Brad Davis in Iraq. That's a war. That's what sanctification is. It's a fight that you need to engage in. Scripture, when you look elsewhere, you'll find that there are two parties at war in your body. There's a spirit and there's the flesh. And they're at war. One is the one side with spiritual tanks and guns and missiles. And then you have the other side, spiritual tanks and wars. And they're fighting with each other, trying to gain supremacy back and forth. The flesh is a term that represents your sinful self. It's not just your body. Sometimes you hear the flesh and the spirit, you think, oh, like um, a Greek dualism, right? Flesh is bad, material is bad, spirit is good. That's not quite what's happening here. We're talking about here. We're talking about the flesh. He's talking about yes, your body, your sinful desires. But he's also talking even your the sin of the mind. Just being in this body, the sins that you have, the the sinful desires and cravings you have, that's the flesh on the one hand. And then you have the Spirit on the other hand. It's the Holy Spirit within you. It's in you to empower you to good. And and, and you've got your Spirit, working with God's Spirit, waging war against the flesh, and they're going after one another. They're pulling you to do... The flesh is pulling you to do one thing, and the Spirit of God is pulling you to do the other thing. And, And Paul gives a great summary of this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. He says, The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things you please. It's exactly what Paul's talking about. Galatians 5, 17 is a great parallel to Romans chapter 7. It's the war that takes place in every Christian. There's a desire to do good, and yet we fail to do it so many times. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know what I'm talking about? If not, it may just be you're not a Christian. <clears throat> because one of the marks of being a Christian is that his desire is to please God in everything. 
And yet, as we have a, a sinful body that we live in, as we've developed these sinful habits before we've become a Christian, yes, when we're a Christian, we're new, we've subdued the flesh, but these habits keep coming in, and it's a constant fight and struggle until the day you die. And if you have no understanding of this battle, I say, look inside and see, are you a believer or not? Have you really embraced Christ? Because a natural man will just continue in the ways of the flesh, thinking he's okay, thinking he's pretty good, but won't have this battle. A Christian is this battle. And maybe you've even felt this despair that Paul said in verse 24, it's a summation of everything. He said, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? I have this body, Lord, that's filled with conflicting desires. On the one hand, I want to do good. I want to serve you. I want to have purity in my heart, God, to you. And yet on the other hand, I have these sinful, wicked desires. I find it so difficult. I wish I could just be freed from these sinful longings. I wish this body of death that is on it would just be taken away. That I'd be pure and worship you rightly in holiness and purity. I wish, O oh Lord, I were free to do the right things. Indeed, there will be a day when you are free. If you believe in Christ, there's a day coming in which 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says that when He appears, we will be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. And we see Jesus Christ, we'll, we'll see Him, we'll be like Him, we'll be pure, and our sinful desires and the flesh will be done away with for good. And we'll worship Him perfectly. At that day, we'll receive a, a sinless body, a spiritual body, 1 Corinthians 15 speaks about this. We don't know much about it, but, but we know it's different than our body. Our body we have now is sown a perishable body, which we have now. But when it's raised, it's raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor, in sin, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a natural body. And that's the body we'll have. And that's when we'll be free from sin. But until that day, verse 24 is our experience. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Well, the hope comes here in verse 25. The body of death is taken away by Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul knew full well that it was Jesus Christ who's going to free him from the body of this death. And he's anticipating Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul knows the way out of this conflict, the wages war within his soul is through Jesus Christ, his perfect sacrifice upon the cross. Jesus bore our sin in his body on the cross. And we won't face the condemnation that's due us. Rather, we'll go free. And someday there'll be no more fighting, no more conflict, no more sinning. But until that day, it's going to be difficult. And notice how Paul even has this whole attitude of, of fighting and struggling. He hates this battle. He doesn't just say, oh, well... I'm sinful me in the flesh. I can't do anything. I'm forgiven by grace. <laughs> C'est la vie. I'm fine. Paul doesn't take that attitude. That's the attitude of some that Paul combated then in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What should we say then? Are we continuing sin that grace might abound? He says, may it never be. That's not Paul's attitude. Paul hates sin in every way and wants to get rid of it and tries, but... Even here, he can't. But until that time which we're free, there's going to be a war within. I love how John Bunyan described the war. He described the, the journey that a Christian makes as a, a long, hard, difficult journey. Think about Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. He, he faced roaring lions. Christian faced a climb up the hill difficulty. Christian had to descend way deep into the valley of humiliation. Christian had to fight Apollyon. He had to go through the valley of the shadow of death. He had to face temptations of Vanity Fair. He had to face the ridicule of the people of Vanity Fair. Christian was captured by giant despair and put in Doubting Castle. Throughout his entire journey, he faced various people who tried to seduce him away from the faith. Talkative. Tried to persuade him into merely a religion of words. Just talk, 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 talk. Demas called him to come to a hill called Lucre. Vain confidence called him to trust in himself. 
Mr. Turnaway tried to get him to turn back. And Mr. Atheist said, there's no celestial city there. Turn back. There's no city. And those are but a few of the difficulties that Christian faced along the way. I mean, I, I could, have, could have come more. And Bunyan, as he described this, think about it, described all of these difficulties after Christian's burden fell off his back to roll into the tomb, never to be seen again when he looked up at the cross. Bunyan understood that all these difficulties and trials were after receiving the forgiveness of sins. That's who we are. And we can easily ask ourselves, why? Why has God made it so hard? I just want to read a hymn John Newton wrote. This is, I think answers the question better than I could. John Newton wrote, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. Twas He who taught me thus to pray, and He, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour, at once He'd answer my request and by His love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for faith, for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set them free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek they all in me. You understand what he's saying? saying that we pray for God's grace to work in our life, God gives us trouble so that when the trouble comes and the difficulties and the struggling with sin, it's so that we don't look to the things of the world. I mean, think about if, um, if God would just free us from all struggle, from all sin, the moment we're saved, what might be our attitude and our actions? We might just say, huh, got this sin thing licked. I can walk around perfectly sinless. And as we do that, I think we would lose sight of our need for God. Because God wouldn't be needed at all. God gives us His Spirit. We walk perfectly. We're okay. And we forget everything that God has done, everything that God has empowered us to do. Fall away from trusting God on a daily basis. And so I really believe that why we struggle with sin is specifically so that we would be forced to depend upon Him every day in greater and greater measure. That's why Romans 7 is here. To force us to say, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And though, as it says in chapter 8, verse 18, that we have sufferings in this present time, that there is a day which there will be this glory that's revealed and our sufferings now which are but little but are real and we're trusting in God, they're not even sufficient to be compared with that glorious. We anticipate that great and glorious day. So I think that's why God does things this way. He engages us in our war so that we trust and depend upon Him in greater and greater ways. Well, in our country, in order to fight, we need to sign up. The days of the draft are over in our country. If you want to fight in a war... You need to go down to your recruiter's office, military recruiter's office, sign up, says, I want to sign up for the military. And once you sign up, you're in. Regarding the war and the members of your body, you signed up when you chose to follow Christ. You said, I want to fight this war. And so you're in. So I guess I ask you this. Are you willing to fight the war? You know, there are some people who sign up for war, sign up for the military, and then when it actually comes to the war, they don't want it. And they try to get out. Some people, what do they do? They flee to Canada to get out of the responsibility they signed up for. And maybe you do that as well. You say, hey, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I want this war thing. I'm just going to let sin reign in my body. I'm going on. Well, you just might be a traitor like Judas. But you need to fight the war. You need to be ready. You're engaged in the war, whether you like it or not. You've got this war in your members, verse 23, that you are engaged in. I love the way John Owen 
put it, he said, the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from their condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Gentlemen, I'm basically saying this. If you believed and trusted in Christ, you know forgiveness of sins. Your goal, your vision in life for all your days ought to be to mortify sin in your members. That ought to be like task number one. You wake up in the morning. What's, what's on my schedule to do today? Task number one, mortify sin in my members. That's what you got to do every day you're fighting in this war. Well, do you know how to fight? It's my second point. Sanctification in us. I just want to give you some practical help, practical counsel this morning about sanctification, how to pursue it. Uh, this topic here is so huge. I mean, much of the Bible talks about sanctification, so I'm, I'm hardly going to be exhausted today. But I thought what I'd do is, is just dig the minds of Romans chapter 7 and maybe pull out some things from Romans chapter 7 that will help us all in the struggle to fight this war. First of all, know this. Point number one, under point number two. Sanctification us. Number one, willpower isn't enough. Willpower is not enough. I mean, if anything is clear from Romans chapter 7, it's this. It's not enough simply to make a resolve that says, I'm not going to sin anymore. I'm done with this sin. I'm going to live today righteously. Throughout this passage, Paul says, I made a resolve. I tried. I have my will right there. Verse 15, I'm not practicing the thing that I would like to do. I'm doing the thing I hate. And in so doing, he's falling flat on the ground. He's trying to stop sinning, but he's failing in it. He says, verse 18, the willing to live righteously and, and, and holy, in verse 18, is present in me, but the doing of good is not. Verse 19, same thing. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Your battle in the flesh regarding sin is bigger than simply saying, I'm not going to sin anymore. And I, I thought a good way to illustrate that is um, using football. Okay, the, uh, I know i got some, some boys over here who are into, into football, and, and Jay, you're into football too, right? And uh, spring, spring camp, fall camp, what do they call it? Spring training. That's not spring training, it's football. What is it? They call it something else. Two-a-days, they call it... Uh, <laughs> so, Training camps, training camps, they call it, just started this week in the NFL, all right? Just open your newspaper, there it is. So I just take this football illustration, and for those from Nepal who don't quite understand American football and all the crazy rules, just bear with us. It'll be okay. Picture this running back who really, really, really wants to get in the end zone. In fact, he's been dreaming about this for years. He told his coach, the day before the game, coach, just give me the ball because I really want to get into the end zone. And on the way to the stadium, he's in the bus with his, his fellow teammates. He says, boy, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to get in that end zone. And even in the huddle, when they call the play, right? 225, X, 55, 3, on 2, ready, go. He says, that's me, that's my number, and I'm going to take the ball. I'm going to run it right through there. He's telling the guys, guys, just give me the ball, and I'm going to get into that end zone. I'm really going to do it. Then the running back is handed the ball. He gets a few yards and he encounters a problem. He encounters 11 guys in the other team trying to stop him from getting into the end zone. And once two or three have a hold of his arms and his legs, they begin to pull him to the ground. And I'm telling you, at that point, no amount of willpower is going to get him into the end zone at that point when these guys are tackling him. He's going down. It's like that with our battle of the flesh. Willpower alone won't help you score a touchdown, and neither will a will alone resolve and the resolve of your heart end in a sinless life. It's just not going to work. End the days of willpower religion. The power of positive thinking doesn't work. Now, don't get me wrong. Without willpower, you're going to be powerless. Right? If you don't want to get in the end zone, if the running back says, right, I don't, maybe I'll get in the end zone, maybe I'll not. Here, hand me the ball, okay. And just got a casual stroll. Is he going to get in the end zone? No way, no way. He's going to be flattened like um, Wiley Coyote is what's going to happen to him. Willpower isn't enough. Willpower alone won't do the job. Well, here's my second point from Romans chapter 7. Your enemy's strong. 
It's really a corollary to my first point, but the reason this is really the reason why your willpower isn't enough because your enemy is strong. Your enemy in this case is your flesh and never underestimate the power and strength of your flesh. Never underestimate it. In verse 14, we see a statement there about the flesh. He says, I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. It means your flesh has made an agreement with sin. Sold itself into bondage. Sold its soul to the devil and said, I am in bondage to sin. I need to obey sin. Sin is going to be the master ruling principle of my life is what your flesh says. And it wants to sin every bit as bad as you want to live righteously. And in fact, you can see throughout this passage how strong the flesh is. It often gets the best of of you because of the strength of it. In fact, Paul says in verse 18 here, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Nothing good dwells in me. It's how strong it is. It's not like, well, there's a hope in my flesh of something good to lead me to righteousness. There's no hope in your flesh because your flesh is so strong. Okay, now let's pick up the football analogy again. Your flesh has been working hard all summer long. Been doing weightlift asans, right? I know you're doing one, Jay. I know that you've done one, Nick. Lifting all the weights you can all summer long, getting as big and as strong as you can. That's what your flesh has been doing in the weight room, bulking up every day. And when you face them on the football field, your flesh is pretty big. It's gigantic. He's strong and wants to stop you from scoring a touchdown. Listen, that is the pull of your flesh. It opposes every desire you have for righteousness. Right? If you go left, defense is coming after they get you. If you're running right, your defense is following you. It's like masking you. Wherever you're going, your flesh is after you, trying to pull you down. And your flesh is strong and big and fast. Erlacher is your flesh. He can chase you down side to side easy. And he's big. And he's sold out. Sold into bondage to defeating you in these matters. So you just got to know your enemy. Your willpower is not enough. Your enemy is strong. And, and now we get some good news, okay? And this is it's not quite Romans 7. It's just out of Romans 7 or Romans chapter 8. Here's the good news. Number three, Christ is stronger than your flesh. Christ is stronger than your flesh. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, verse 1. And then verse 2 of chapter 8. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. At one point, you were bound to the law of sin and death. When you were just in your flesh, when you were a natural man, bound in that. But now, you're free of that. Now, a Christian, one who's engaged with Christ, trusting Christ, he's free of his flesh. He has a new nature. He's got this battle within now. Where it didn't used to be a battle, but now it's a battle now that you've been made new and now that you've been set free. And, and you know, like a a police department that has a, a renegade prisoner, right? The police department's going after that person. And you now are free. So you are from your flesh. Once we're bound, we're free. Verses 3 and 4 talk about the details of that. How Christ obeyed the law like we couldn't obey the law. He became an offering for sin. Sin was condemned in the flesh. The righteous requirements of the law are met in Christ. So by believing in Him, we can be made righteous. It talks about that. And then verse 5 gets some practical things here. It says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, who have believed, who have trusted, who have become a part and different now, they set their minds on the Spirit. And the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. And, and these words are hope. As we trust in Christ, we can be empowered to conquer our sin. All right, so think more about think more about football here. Here's the deal. The quarterback hands you the football, and you want to make efforts to uh, score a touchdown. Your enemy's strong, but but what do you have as a running back? What do you have? You got line. You got blockers in front of you, and that's good news, right, Tyler? You play halfback, right? That's good news. And the best running backs are those who follow their line and they wait and they're patient and they patient wait for the hole to develop and then when the hole develops boom they go through because they've been helped by their offensive line and so also with the spirit the spirit is like your blockers and you need to rely and trust and <clears throat> find your strength not in your own willpower just to go and steamroll ahead 
but to trust and wait for the Spirit to provide you the way of escape and the temptation. Because 1 Corinthians 10 says that every temptation has a way of escape. The way of escape is to trust Christ. To realize through the Spirit your blockers are going to go. They're going to open up a hole for you then to get through. But you've got to be patient. You've got to wait. You've got to trust your blockers. You've got to realize let them do the dirty work. Let them subdue your enemy, the flesh. And let them flatten you know, these linebackers and linemen for you. And then go on. And this is, this is good news. Because the Spirit has the ability to defeat your flesh. And your blockers can defeat the defense. You just need to trust. And so with respect to sin, you have the power to overcome sin through the strength of the Spirit of Christ working within you. I have one more observation to help you in your war with sin. And this maybe gets us back into Romans 7 a little bit. Here it is. You feed your own flesh. You feed your own flesh. See, the battle is within you. It's your mind against your flesh. It's the Spirit of God in you against your flesh. And even if you read these things of what Paul is saying in here, it's so much about, you know, my mind, I'm here, and my flesh is here. And it's kind of like this the schizophrenia. He's right in, inside of himself fighting himself. But that's good news because the battle's in yourself. James says that people are drawn away enticed to sin when they're drawn away by their own lusts. See, the battle's in you. And here's my point. You can choose to feed your flesh and make it stronger, or you can choose to starve your flesh and make it weaker. All right, so think about the football illustration. Here's the enemy. He's on defense. But you know what's interesting about the enemy? is that when they come in the summertime and train in the weight room, who do they ask to be able to train? They ask you. Say, oh, Mr. Steve, can I have keys to the weight room? And you got keys in your hand. And you say, sure, I'll give you keys. You guys, come on over. Come on over here. Use my weight room. And you open it up and you say, here, have at the weights. You've got the keys to the weight room. You can feed the flesh by opening up the, the weight room and letting them get in there to pump their iron. Or you can say, you know what? today, guys. You can't use my weight room today. Just go home. Enjoy your Saturday morning cartoons. Think then what also happens, it happens to defenders. When they eat, they come to your house to eat. They knock on the door and they say, hey, we're hungry. Can, can we have some food? And you have a choice. You can, you can open the door and say, hey, hey. Or lacquer, come on in, come on in, right here. Oh, look, I got the spread. There's pasta, and there's there's steak, and there's milk, and there's fruit, and there's vegetables. Make sure you're well balanced, so you're nice and strong. You can let your defenders, your enemies, come in and eat, or you can say, uh, "Not today, guys. No food for you guys today. Why don't you you go on your way?" And hungry football players. I've seen pictures sometimes of what football players can eat. I, I knew this Division One quarterback one time. And he used to eat two, two chickens himself for dinner. Right, Dan? Pete Crocker used to eat two chickens himself. Maybe have just a little bit for his family. But, and this is a quarterback. This is like a small guy, you know, not one of those big guys. What they eat is incredible. And so think about this. As you turn your defenders down, you can't eat here today, what are they going to do? We're really hungry, Steve. We really want to eat. And they're going to pester and they're going to pester and they're going to be try to persuade you in any way. And these guys are big and strong and they can intimidate you. So you have to give us your food. I mean, this is where we eat. We're going to starve. Give us your food, please. And we're going to beat you up if you don't. And you're going to face all this intimidation and you can either give in and let your flesh eat or you can choose to starve your flesh. But think about if you starve your flesh. What happens when the game begins in the fall? You come to compete, and you're competing against skinny, starved guys, right? You're competing like against uh, Dan Herman and, and Lance Milton and Tom Galen, right? And skinny, thin guys. I'd rather go against those guys. And, but you know what? Listen, your flesh never gives up. And Dan can run pretty fast. Right? And Tom's pretty tall and can knock down those passes. And Lance, you know, he can scoot pretty well too. Once he gets a grip on you, you're done. 
So they're, they're, they're still there. But, but if you don't feed them, you don't let them get in the weight room, they're, they're going to be a little bit easier to conquer and to, to get around. That's how the flesh works. You expose our flesh to sinful activities, sinful thoughts. The flesh only gets bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger and stronger. But you engage in sinful activities. Your flesh likes it. Your flesh wants it. Wants more and more and more and more and more. And your flesh is never satisfied. I mean, given the chance, your flesh will be at the weight room until he looks like Schwarzenegger. And will eat until he's like William Perry, the refrigerator. I mean, think about alcoholics. They didn't start out drinking a 12-pack every night. They started just a little bit. They say, hey, I like that buzz. Let me get a little bit more. Hey, I really like that. They want a little bit more. And, and, and more and more. And it just grows and grows and grows. And the, the flesh, I'm telling you, is never satisfied. It always needs bigger and better and more and more and more. Think about those who gamble, right? They go out and start gambling. Say, hey, this is kind of fun. But, you know, they're, they're not satisfied anymore with a $5 bet or a $10 bet. They want a $20 bet. And pretty soon they want a $100 bet. And pretty soon they want a $1,000 bet. And pretty soon they're, they're betting like $10,000. Why? Because their flesh wants the thrill of, of being on the edge where they've never been before. And that's where your flesh is. But if you starve the flesh, it doesn't know what it's missing. Or, or maybe it forgets what it was missing. So that's the goal in fighting the flesh is to starve your flesh. So stay away from the activities that feed your flesh. Just stay away from them. Stay away from the books and the magazines and the television shows, the internet sites, the friends that pull you into sin. Fill your days rather with righteous thoughts and righteous friends and righteous activities. So Bible reading and prayer is all about. It focuses your direction and attention upon God and starves your flesh. Because your flesh is saying, I don't like that God stuff. And you're saying, but this is what I need. It says, I will pull you away. So what genuinely fulfilling fellowship is about, she among and you know the people of the church, it just fills your relationships and fills all satisfaction that you need. When you have genuine Christian friends, worldly friends are not needed. They're not attractive. And Christian friends are going to build you up. You come to church and Bible studies even when you don't feel like it because it's the very thing you need to build you up and grow you up. And as you starve your flesh, it's going to make your victory over sin easier and easier. Oh, they're always going to be there and they may be smaller and they may may be pesky, but they're not going to be the huge domineering defensive ends that they once were. Well, that's sanctification in us. I'm way out of time. I just close one last point, sanctification in others. This is not in the text at all. This is uh, mostly just for your help. Sanctification and others. I simply want to say just a few words about how the sanctification process works with other people. The sanctification process is slow. It's hard. It's got many up and downs. And those of you who are engaged in the battle know how hard it is for yourself. And I simply encourage you, exhort you, to realize that if it's hard for you, it's hard for other people. And so be patient with them as they're in the battle as well. Parents, be patient with your kids. Some of whom may not even have the Spirit of Christ. Don't expect others to conquer sin instantly because you know that you can't conquer sin instantly. And thereby live at peace with one another. Well, let me pray. Lord, I would pray that you would... Take these words and help us. I, I pray for this whole series that it would be something to, to genuinely help and encourage and strengthen us to realize that your ways aren't our ways. Lord, in, in every way, I pray that we would embrace the cross of Christ. Realize that's our only hope. The gospel is our hope to live victorious over sin. So give us, give us victory. So maybe slow, maybe little by little, but help us and strengthen us in these days.